Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, did you uh, see this frenzy yesterday after some random crypto website said the SEC had approved the uh, iShares Bitcoin ETF? Yeah, it, uh, the ETF business, I think, is getting as bad as the Daily Mail, Nate, isn't it? It's unbelievable. I, I mean, really, I don't know any other way to describe it other than a complete clown show. I just, uh, when I saw that headline come across, or I think it was on uh, Twitter yesterday morning, I just thought to myself, you know, first of all, the SEC doesn't approve anything, right? That's just not the verbiage that you would see in some sort of leak of information from the SEC. So that caught my attention right off the bat, just that, that use of approve. But then if you just take a step back and, and thought about this, the SEC literally just delayed the iShares filing, what, less than three weeks ago, I believe, like at the end of September. So then to turn around and, uh, you know, quote, unquote, approve that product three three weeks later just didn't make sense to me. And then not only that, uh, it, and I want to ask you about this, um, on Friday, we know that the SEC did not, uh, you, you know, attempt to dispute this grayscale ruling, right? And so... It just seemed like the timing of that would be of them then going and approving the iShares ETF would be extremely poor optics, right? Doing so right after not appealing Grayscale. And then I guess the other thing, too, here is Grayscale and really ARC are technically, or you can make the case, are technically ahead of BlackRock in the approval line, right? So why would iShares be approved before them? And I'm not saying that's entirely out of the realm of possibilities to happen just because it's BlackRock, but just given what I described, it just the, the whole thing didn't make sense to me. Uh, I just, I think it shows you how bad everyone wants this thing to happen. Well, the drama is ex exhilarating and it's, it's fun to watch, but at the same time, somebody probably lost their job yesterday, right? <laughs> All right. So, look, we did have some real news at the end of last week, which I was alluding to, which is that the SEC is not appealing uh, th this ruling in the Grayscale case. So, of course, Grayscale sued the SEC after the SEC denied Grayscale's attempt to convert their uh, Bitcoin trust, GBTC, into an ETF. Grayscale won that case. Uh, the SEC had 45 days to appeal that ruling. And, and of course, that deadline has now passed. So, Look, I don't want to beat this into the ground, but I mean, are, are we quickly heading towards a spot Bitcoin ETF approval here? Maybe that random crypto website was just a little bit early. Yeah, maybe it was a little early. So a little inside baseball. It was telling that the SEC did not appeal uh, and that was favorable. At the same time, the SEC has had regular conversations with almost 10 issuers that have filings in place for a spot Bitcoin ETF. That's good as well, but they haven't been talking to, to Grayscale. <clears throat> so with, with that being said, now they're having conversations with Grayscale. We, I don't know that. I, I don't have any inside baseball, but they're going to have to have some conversations. And yeah, I, I think the big question, Nate, is if there is approval, will somebody be at the head of the line? Will Grayscale be at the head of the line because it's conversion? I mean, they have been submitting 10Ks and 10Qs uh, uh, all along on their current product, uh, 
GBDT. So going forward, it, you could argue that they're well ahead of the rest of the pack. No, I agree with that. And that's I, I, I didn't eloquently state this earlier, but that's what I was alluding to in that. I mean, I think you could make the case Grayscale is technically at the front of the line because they view that original 19B4 filing, uh, which was disapproved by the SEC, they view that as a live filing um, since the SEC lost this case. So I think that's an interesting storyline. Um, ARC, again, if you just look at what is currently viewed as a live filing, ARC's at the front of the line. And what I was going to ask you earlier, I saw yesterday that you were on uh, CNBC's ETF Edge with Bob Pisani and Kathy Wood. And to your point, she made the, the comment that the SEC does now uh, seem more open to this and that there's been dialogue back and forth. A- any takeaways from her comments? I-, I thought it was interesting just that she was pretty forthcoming and that there has been a lot of dialogue back and forth. And their partner, 21 Shares, answered this list of questions the SEC had. I mean, clearly that shows movement. It is. And the, the fact that she, she didn't go into detail, but she said that there was conversation. And in fact, there was an amendment. So if there's an amendment, they're getting some type of feedback that something had to be tweaked or changed, which, again, is, is a positive move. So I think she was um, very positive about the potential outcome. I think at this point, most bets are it's going to happen. The question's when. Yeah, well, we'll move on here. I'll just leave everybody with this. Um, next time you see a, a tweet from a random crypto website, you have a place you can go to see if these uh, filings have actually been approved. And that's the SEC website. Uh, <laughs> it'll be posted there. Uh, so, all right, because they have to they have to post the rule change there. Um, in any event, let's move on. And look, I want to jump around. I want to talk equities, and then we can talk fixed income. But some people may not be aware, Tom, that you're a disciplined trend follower, right? There's a reason your site w- w- was called ETFtrends.com. And I thought, given your expertise here, and also, just because I probably don't talk uh, technicals enough on this podcast, I just love to hear what you're seeing in the equity markets right now, because there have obviously been a lot of concerns out there with rising interest rates. Uh, we now have a, uh, a, unfortunately, and very tragic, a major geopolitical situation in the Middle East. Uh, we're still not sure if the Fed is going to uh, orchestrate this soft landing. I could keep going, but but you get what I'm saying. What, what are you seeing from a technical perspective right now? Yeah, a lot of the positive momentum we had in the beginning of the year, especially in areas like uh, developed markets outside the U.S., emerging markets, small caps, they really fell off. So as I was looking at trends or just a 200-day average today on most major indexes, there's not that much of positive. Uh, S&P came down and hit the 200-day, but fortunately, with the movement in the, in the market in the last 10 days, it's bounced back. But very few sectors, for example, are above. Uh, energy is above. Uh, some of the miners are above. But most of the sectors are still below. Obviously, mid-caps, small-caps are below. International markets are below. Uh, not really positive from a trend following standpoint. What about uh, international? I know. So, well, I know it, some. It, well, I was going to say. You know, I know some investors and advisors. I think there is this sentiment out there. Uh, I don't know how prevailing it is that U.S. stocks are overvalued. It's the same thing we've talked about before, right? And 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 maybe there's better value overseas. I, I'm just curious more though from a technical perspective. Are you seeing anything internationally? 
So from a trend following standpoint, when you look at the 200 day, they're below, but, but you've got the master Rob Barnott coming on soon. Um, and I'm sure he's going to be talking about valuations. I mean, we have valuations that we haven't seen in a long, long time. Um, single digit PEs in, in areas uh, outside the U.S., including small caps. There are a lot of small cap stocks that are really profitable, kicking off di dividends and are trading very inexpensively right now. I think a lot of us are waiting for the pendulum to swing because over the long term, small caps do outperform large caps, but that hasn't happened in a long period of time. And if you did diversify into those areas, you weren't rewarded and you had to have tough conversations with your clients. Yeah, it's just so interesting. It's been the same story for so long in that it's been mega cap uh, stocks, right? Large cap growth in the U.S. U.S. continues to be the whatever the best house on a bad block. It's just I feel like I've been talking about the same thing here for 10 or 15 years. And just when you think things are going to shift, we just see more of the same. And, yeah, I am going to talk a little bit about that with uh, with Rob here in a little bit. Um, Tom, on the fixed income side, and, and not from a, a technical standpoint, obviously, just, I guess, more of a sentiment standpoint, a running thread that you and I have had, which uh, spans back over your last several ETF prime appearances, has been this tug of war between ultra short duration bond ETFs and then an ETF like TLT, the uh, iShares 20 plus year treasury bond ETF. And I, I don't want to be, a, again, a broken record here, but let me just lay this thing out. So, you can get about a 5.3% SEC yield in an ETF like SGOV, which is the iShare zero to three month treasury bond ETF. And that's essentially risk free, right? Or you can get a 4.9% uh, yield in an ETF like TLT, but that has a duration of about 16 and a half, nearly 17. Now, listen to this. I, I pulled a few stats here. So, since the first Fed rate hike in March of 2022, the iShares 20 plus year Treasury bond ETF, TLT, that's taken in over $34 billion in new investor money. And then if you look just this year, it's taken in nearly $18 billion, which that's good enough for a third place out of all ETF inflows in 2023. That's happened despite it being down 32% performance-wise since the Fed began raising rates, and then down 11% this year. And so I'm just curious where you're at on this right now in terms of whether or not to take uh, dur duration risk. Clearly, a lot of investors are comfortable with this risk. Well, they are. And Nate, you and I have talked about it. We're surveying advisors all the time, and most advisors feel a year from now, rates will be lower. We don't know if we're going to have a recession. We don't know how uh, tough it will be if that happens. Uh, most people feel we're going to be higher for longer, but they do feel rates will be lower. So if you've got money on the sidelines, whether it's in money market funds or short duration governments, it's nice getting the yields that you're getting right now. But if rates go lower, those yields won't be available. So some have jumped the gun, as you point out, and maybe a year ago went longer duration. But a lot of advisors now are starting to put that money to work. They're trying to lock in those longer yields. And in addition, if we do see lower rates, as you know how this works, uh, something like TLT will actually have some appreciation as well if rates drop. So during those periods of time when rates were rising and you had uh, losses in your bond portfolio, 
um, you can have an opportunity to make some of that back. So it will kind of add insult to injury for many people who abandoned the 60-40 and sat on the sidelines, which maybe that's worked for them and, and it feels good to be safe. But if we do see rates lower in the future, you're not going to be getting 5% in a money market fund or a short-term government bond ETF. I, it, this thing's going to move quickly, probably, and it's going to feel that way in the next 12 months. Um, there's a lot of Fed talk that's going around today. We're going to hear from the Fed in a couple weeks, and uh, they may be done. And if they are, and as an investor, you can top tick rates by actually going longer duration, consider locking in some of that longer duration yield with the ability that you might have some appreciation as well down the road. Yeah. And on that appreciation, I don't know if you saw this, there was a great uh, chart or matrix last week from Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld. And I, I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but just to give you a flavor here, and I know you get this, this is more for, for listeners benefit. So basically what this laid out is what happens if say interest rates rise by 3% or fall by 3% and then everywhere in between. And so as an example, let's say rates fall by 150 basis points. Two-year treasury would have a total return over the next 12 months. This is estimated at 6.5%. Meanwhile, a 20-year treasury would have an estimated return of 26%, to your point on, again, capital appreciation. And I'm not going to, again, go through all of these. Here, here's my thing when I saw that uh, that chart. First of all, I think you have to compare what those returns look like to shorter term treasuries and you know what the what the relative trade off is but i think more importantly it's how do you how do you view bonds in a portfolio and i know i've talked about this quite a bit my bias is to view bonds more as a ballast in a portfolio is a a um, something with without much volatility it's a safer portion of the portfolio and i'll take the risk on the equity side the challenge with being in something like TLT is you do have pretty significant volatility. And so even though we consider and say the risk reward moving forward maybe looks a little bit better now and that rates could come back in, we don't know for sure. And if rates were to jump a little bit, you could have some some real damage on top of the damage that investors have already seen over the past couple of years in that bond portfolio. That's the challenge for me. Now, I think if you're holding let's say you're buying a 20-year treasury or 30-year treasury and you're holding it to maturity, you're, you're trying to match assets and liabilities and, and, and stuff like that, I, I get it. That makes sense. But if if you're just trying to play the capital appreciation in longer-term bonds, I think that's dangerous in, in a bond portfolio because, you, I mean, you look over the past year and a half, it's been equity-like volatility. Does, does that make sense? It, it absolutely does. But I think if we look uh, into the future, the probabilities of us seeing another – 100 or 200 basis point uh, hike in the market. I mean, we could see that as as far as rates, but some real crazy stuff would have to happen. I, I think the message for investors is if, if you sidestepped the decline in bonds during a rising rate environment, it, it looks like there's clear skies ahead. So don't miss out on that. Get back to the 60-40 because we know people are not good at timing markets, whether it be bond markets or equity markets. What's going to be really interesting, so we have seen pretty uh, nice flows into ultra-short duration bond ETFs and shorter-term bond ETFs, but I know you've seen these 
massive amounts of uh, investor dollars going into money market funds. I actually tweeted out a stat last week from Strategist Todd Sohn. So he noted that over $1.1 trillion has gone into money market funds over the past year. $1.1 trillion. (laughs) Money market fund assets have grown 25% overall during this time. I I just find that uh, uh, unbelievable. And by the way, Pretty lucrative for fund companies because a lot of those money market funds aren't exactly uh, cheap, at least not all of them. But any thoughts on money market funds? Because, again, that's, uh, you know, if rates do start coming down, then investors are going to feel it there. Yeah, it was interesting yesterday, Nate, when we were looking at Schwab's earnings numbers. And when you dug into it, they just weren't seeing the deposits that they saw a year ago. Uh, I think a lot of people are using the banks. They're, they feel like, I want to keep my money safe. I'm going to put it into CDs. I might put it into money market funds. Deposits at banks are looking fairly strong. And yes, they're paying or trying to pay competitive yields. But you look at some of the earnings numbers of the banks, especially like B of A came out today and had a real strong beat. They're one of the biggest consumer banks out there where they're making money on deposits. They're making money on credit cards and things like that. So I, I think... We're still in a, an area where the average investor out there is, if they're making more money, they're not putting it in equities and they're not putting it in bonds. They're they're keeping it safe. Yeah, but again, it gets back into that tug of war because if you're parking yeah. that in in you know in a short term investment vehicle and rates do come back in, you're going to have that reinvestment risk. So I, I just think this is something we're going to continue to have a conversation about over the uh, the next year. I find it fascinating, and it's especially again going back to the uh, TLT flows, just seeing the massive amounts of, of money going in there. Clearly, there's a lot of investor sentiment that that's you know that's where you want to be. Uh, Tom, just a few minutes left before I let you go. I don't think you're going to be back on this podcast until, I, I, I think, late November, early December, somewhere around there. And so I wanted to ask you, are, are there maybe uh, one or two ETF stories that you're going to be watching for the remainder of the year? And I would say anything non-crypto related because we talk enough about that. But a- anything in particular you would highlight? Yeah, um, a couple things, Nate. First of all, the alternative income area of the marketplace has just caught fire. I mean, led by the leader, uh, JP Morgan's equity premium ETF, JEPI, J-E-P-I, approaching 30 billion in assets. It's crazy. Um, Kicking off about 8% yield. But there are a lot of sister strategies out there that are doing well also. Uh, We are going to have new players in the market too. Um, Morgan Stanley has a version uh, with Parametric being the sub-advisor, which, you know, rumor has it, it should be out in just a matter of days. It's going to be interesting to see what happens there. When you look at Crane Shares and they have their own versions, um, we've talked about the K-Web version, which is that uh, China internet version where they have a covered call strategy where it's kicking off almost 5% a, a month, almost 60% annually. Uh, that ticker is CLIP, K-L-I-P. Uh, it, it's a whole new asset class. And it, when we're surveying advisors, they're saying this should be a core position in, in portfolios because regardless of the direction of interest rates, the covered call strategy income seems to be pretty consistent. What's your take on that? I, I have mixed feelings here. Um, if, if, first of all, by the way, there have been a ton of copycat products coming to the market, right, based on the success of yeah. Jeppy, and uh, even even a lot that are 
playing off of the uh, Jeppy ticker symbol. My, my thing is, I just don't know that investors and advisors as a whole um, fully understand all of the the risks and potential complexities of this product and what you may be giving up and and the risks you may be taking on. So if you fully understand those, great. If you want to have a cover call strategy and give up some of your upside, you have a little bit of a downside buffer. But, you know, if the market were to go down, I, I don't know, 40% or 50%, you still have a lot of downside exposure there. Um, you know, there are tax considerations. I, I just... I, I worry about how these are used in a portfolio and um, what happens if markets go to either extreme, whether that be up or down. Investors may be surprised at what their experience is. I think that's it. I think the products do exactly what they say they're supposed to do. Um, I think they, they can have a place if you understand where they fit in a portfolio and you know how you're using these or using these. Is, is this equity exposure? Is this fixed income exposure? You know, So long as you have your head around that. Uh, but I, I do worry a little bit about the complexities of some of these. Yeah, Nate, it's good advice. It's not easy. Uh, just the tax treatment alone uh, is complicated and it changes uh, year over year. So there's a lot to um, dig in there. You've got to get your accountant involved. But again, it's kind of the beauty of the ETF business. We continue to see innovation and choice. But like you said, look at it very, very closely. One other quick strategy is managed futures, which tends to do well when markets are volatile. Um, but one I like is the IMGP DBI managed futures strategy, uh, ticker symbol DBMF. Andrew Beer's a portfolio manager. This guy's been at it for a while. Um, when you take advantage of currencies, so the dollar's been on fire. He's taken advantage of that. He's also got some um, fixed income futures uh, that he has included there too, and also commodities. So if you've got disciplined strategies and diversification among those areas, it, it's an opportunity to further diversify a portfolio and take advantage of times like these when maybe equities and fixed income aren't doing that great, but you can actually participate in other areas of the market. Again, like uh, these covered call strategies, you've got to do your homework and understand how they work. Yeah, for sure. And to your point on potentially stocks and, and bonds not doing so well together, I don't know if you saw this Andrew Bear who you mentioned, he had a great thread on uh, Twitter or X yesterday talking about this and basically stating how the correlation between stocks and bonds has, has risen over the past several years. And so investors and advisors might want to look for uncorrelated assets and uncorrelated strategies of which something like a managed future strategy would fit the bill. Um, my, you know, my take on that, I, I, yes, I, I, I get that. But going back to our conversation on bonds, I think it depends on what you think is going to happen here because what if what if rates do come back in fairly substantially and you are in longer duration bonds? Well, then that 60-40 portfolio might work, you know, decently in that situation from a capital appreciation standpoint. Let's say, let's say rates stay elevated 
and you can still clip five and a half percent risk-free. That's pretty good in the 40 percent of the portfolio as well. Now, the question in that scenario would be what happens to stocks if rates remain elevated. My point being is that, and by the way, Andrew Beer has forgotten more about this stuff than I'll ever know. My point is, is that it's not always straightforward. And so I think, again, taking a step back, it certainly makes sense. You want to own uncorrelated assets in a portfolio. It's just, it's so difficult in this environment to know what's going to happen. I don't think a lot of people coming into this year would have thought, the, you know, stocks are up and, and you know, with the risk-free rate at whatever, five, five and a half percent. Uh, I, I just, this stuff is not always straightforward. No, you're, you're right. And I would think that somebody like Andrew could see uh, rate shifting and could take the other side of the, uh, the futures market there, hopefully, but you, you know, who knows, but uh it, it it doesn't get less complicated as we see these types of strategies enter. And um, more credit to you, Nate, for talking about it because you know somebody sees a new innovative ticker, you got to go to school. It's it's not uh, your grandfather's ETFs anymore, right? All right. Well, I'm hoping uh, my next guest, Rob Arnott, can take some of the complexity out of some of this uh, the stuff we're talking about. Tom, always great chatting. Uh, excellent perspective as usual. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nate. That was Tom Lydon, vice chairman of Vetify.